Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. Boy, that song. Thank you so much. Where's Caleb? Yeah. Where's right there. Okay. So great, Caleb. Thank you. As he was singing, and you know, I feel like dancing. This past week, I had a couple days of actually being able to be with some people dancing in worship. I did not dance, <laughs> but I enjoyed their dancing in worship. Also, with a lot of people crying this week. Yeah. And uh, and I wasn't with Teresa, but with some others. And one of the powerful ones was two of them were the same people. That in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the other stuff, they still danced in worship. <clears throat> this is a freebie, so, but just, because this has just been bringing kind of flooded some stuff. It was a good week in a lot of ways. Yes. And, uh, on Monday, I was in a class, so facilitating class, teaching, or whatever you want to say, but we were doing Ephesians 1 and 2, and I had it planned out. This class was supposed to be over in an hour and a half. Now, just so you guys don't panic, I never teach that way here. <laughs> it's a fully engaged, it's, so I mean, this is not a prelude of something would happen here, but, but normally it's like 40 minutes, a break, another 40 minutes. At the two-hour mark, they're still so enthused, they didn't want me to stop. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I feel like sometimes, because we sang one of those songs about the generations, you know, and, and about the generations appreciating the resurrection. And these are younger people. Of course, I'm at the age now where almost everybody's younger people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they were so excited about Ephesians 1 and 2. They were so excited to discuss it, so excited to find out what does this mean? They were so tripped out on the idea that, wait a minute, you're telling me before the casting out of the cosmos, before the world was created, before the fall of Satan, before the fall of that, before all of that, God foresaw it all, knew it would cost him the blood of his son, and he decided we're worth it. Absolutely. You're telling me he says he sees us as innocent and blameless and holy. Absolutely. You're telling me it has nothing to do with what I did. It has nothing to do with the shame. Some of these are the same people I was with in their tears. So all the shame, all the guilt, all that other stuff, he foresaw that and he decided that it didn't matter. It was still worth it. Yeah. So I really am saved by the faithfulness of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah actually, that's, that's exactly true. And I liked because one of them said, now I think I'm getting this idea, this idea that we're not free to sin. His grace frees me from sin. Because I'm seeing now, they're starting to really click, like, if I see this, I'm starting to get that. Well, and, and I had to help him self-correct on this, but he eventually self-corrected. One of them was, he started to say something like, I know, but I was wondering if I'm saved because I could feel the presence of God leave me. I say, but now do you see that actually is not true? That's a lie. You can't feel the presence of God leave you because it doesn't leave you. So more accurate would be to say, and this is what I say, I'm not saying we have to be phony, I'm not saying we deny our feelings, but you say what you felt was your feelings ebb. So your feelings were ebbing, but that is not the presence of God leaving you. 
because that's that's one of the hard lessons two of them are learning. They're coming to grips when they're because they're learning that there our feelings and our own thoughts are not what we rely on. We have to rely on what God declares, Amen. and God declares He is with me, and God declares He will never leave me. So my feelings may add, but that doesn't change reality. Okay. <clears throat> And that will tie actually now. Good. I'm glad I just clipped in my head that this will tie by third slide. <clears throat> this is this is Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 is one of the most poetic. Um, it's a Messiah chapter. It's all about Jesus, and there's a whole lot to it. We're just doing three verses today. Because again, this will not be an hour and a half, and then I expect you to ask for an extra half hour, folks. <laughs> That's not what we're doing today. But I do want you to have this feel. I'm going to repeat it. These are young people, and they were so excited in the word that they wanted class to go extra long. They were excited about it. Okay, so this, this is about Jesus. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. I was planning to share this before I, I had one of these talks. I had a talk with a student on Wednesday, and he had heard this whole sermon. And to me, I just took it as confirmation that this is a good scripture to go through today. But it was all about the fear of the Lord. And this guy was saying, man, I don't think I'm saved. And he was really shaken. He was one of the ones who was crying. And we talked about the fear. And, and I do know God is big. I mean, my life scripture is, is, is Isaiah 40, and it's all about the bigness of God. But a lot of times without the fear of the Lord, it's like, God is big, you're puny, and he can squash you like a bug. So you better fear God. No. I mean, yes, that's true. He could do that. But that whole, that's not the point. I mean, you could also say, well, God's big, I'm little. He can make me three foot, foot tall and turn my skin purple. Yeah, he could, but that's not the point. He doesn't want to scorch me like a bug. Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. Tells me there's something about the fear of the Lord to delight in. You know, it's actually the, the word that has a lot to do with being awestruck. And even the word delight has a connotation of almost a rest in it. And there is actually scriptures about we rest and we have joy in the Lord's, in the fear of the Lord, in being awestruck by him. So my question, I guess, <clears throat> Dan isn't here to ask for the whiteboard. I don't know how we're doing with the camera, but I, at this one of the times, I really miss the whiteboard. Because one, one way that my classes, like on Wednesday and then on Thursday, we did a class on leadership. It was another one the students wanted to go longer. But it starts out with the whiteboard where I just have up there, well, how did Jesus lead? What is leadership? What do you look for in a leader? And we fill this board, and then the, the challenge to them is now narrow it down to your top ten. And it's based on a question like this about what did Jesus model for leadership? And in my case, this. What did Jesus model in delighting and resting in the fear of the Lord? How did he model that? Love. He did do love. He did do love. And I said, when I have the whiteboard, we'll do the short answer, but not today, because... It's already 11 or 10.30. Um, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. 
He does only what the Father sees, what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. John 5, 19. In 8, 28, Jesus said, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak exactly what the Father has taught me. And there's a number of these, just in John alone. It's like a running theme in John where Jesus keeps saying, I don't do my stuff independent. I'm relying on the Father for everything. Remember, it says he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see and his ears hear. He's saying, I'm not relying on that. I'm relying on God. The awestruckness and the fear of the Lord is, because I know he's bigger, because I know his perspective is accurate, I'm going to go by what he says. I'm going to go by what he's doing. The way one of my students put it once is, I, I have no reason to believe a thought about myself that is different than what God declares. So my thoughts about me do not matter as much as what God declares to be true. <clears throat> so there's a way that I forgot this. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, I had a student that wanted to meet with me. And, and they're going through a lot of transition, dealing with a lot of stuff, and has, she has to make some major decisions. And she started saying, yeah, I want to meet with you because I talked to my friends and they all said, oh, you know who you need to talk to is Steve. Oh, Steve will know what to do. You, you got to talk to Steve. She says, I had three friends say, oh, Steve will solve this whole thing. You got to go talk to Steve. <laughs> and without being aware of it, something was going on in me as she's saying this. And actually what happened was I started talking. And I started talking fast. And I realized I'm going hyperverbal. <laughs> and I do that when I get nervous. And then it, it kind of brought an awareness of, whoa, wait, I'm doing, I'm being hyperverbal because I'm nervous. Why am I nervous? And it's because the more her, she talked about how her friends talked me up, the more I feel like, oh man, I'm going to fail. It's like, wait, I, I don't want this pressure on me. It's like, what, what do you mean I'm going to give you guys? I never tell people what to do. I don't like telling people what to do. <clears throat> and so I'm getting this, this all wrapped up. And I forgot this fear of the Lord. Jesus didn't have that stress because Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. He only spoke what the Father gave him. And I was able to stop and have a rest and realize, you know what? God, what questions do you want me to ask the person? And I'm just going to ask them whatever questions you give me, and we'll just see where it goes. I'm not responsible for anything in her life. I'm just here to encourage her and see where it goes. And by the time we were done, she kind of self-adjusted and revealed to herself where God had her. It wasn't like she made a big decision. What she got to is this place of peace of, I'm exactly where God wants me now. And he's told me what I need to know for now. And he'll tell me in three months what I need in three months. Yeah. I didn't really have to teach her that. She just, God just, through the conversation, revealed it to her. And that's what I mean by resting and delighting in the fear of the Lord. Is that fear is not he's going to scorch me. It's that I know it's all about him anyway. It's important. And even seeing Caleb today brought this to mind because I... <laughs> When I think of the guys I've met in this program, and a lot of them are similar to guys I've also met in jail, and even when it's not, is this to me is also related, this whole idea of how Jesus small fear of the Lord explains to us what sin really is. Because we get so hung up on failure. We get so hung up on externals. Um, with, with my friends that went back to addiction. And... And I express this a lot, but it happens a lot. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.
And when I talked to him, I feel I blew it. And I felt like I had to spend some time to really prove to God I mean it this time. I mean, how many times will he take me back? And that shows a flaw in not getting this. Because Jesus modeled his fear of the Lord by relying on the Father for everything. Any sin we have, the root, what it really boils down to is, I acted independent of him. So whatever addiction or whatever thing, whatever way it, it manifested, the root was somewhere along the way, I quit relying on him. And I say this because like my buddies in jail that would quit coming to Bible study when they come in for the third time because they got caught and they're back in jail. It was all another story. I think that's part of God's grace, but that's, sorry. We're squenching that rabbit trail now. Um, is that they understand where your first flaw was is you stopped relying on the Lord. You thought you could handle things. You thought you had better ideas. Because if we get that, we realize whatever thing it is, whether it's the, the, the drink, the food, the drugs, the website, whatever it is you did, if you understand it's a symptom of being independent, then you realize this idea that I need to spend three days away from the body of Christ so I can show I mean it this time is insanity. Yeah. So what you're saying is, I acted independent, it led to trouble, and my answer is I'm going to act independent three more days. Okay. <clears throat> So how did Jesus model Isaiah 11? I want to talk more about this. How does Jesus lead? How did Jesus teach? And, and I'm not telling you the whole punchline yet because there is a scripture we're getting to, but I really feel like God wants me to preface this scripture before I hit you with it. <clears throat> if we think about Jesus modeling this, that dependence on the Lord, moment by moment, he did spend times they watched, he'd go away for prayer. And then when he come back from prayer, but that's why they asked him, hey, teach us to pray because we see you're a man of prayer. How do we pray? <clears throat> but along with that, they have all these as we went scriptures. You know, as they were going by, Jesus saw a man who was born blind. And the disciples asked him, who sinned, his parents or him? And at least this ongoing conversation where Jesus says, no, 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 see your theology's all wrong. This has nothing to do with sin. But the thing I want you to cross is, this came up as they were living life, as they're walking by. Times he, you know, he walks by, sees the blind men, and he stops and asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Sometimes the questions seem ridiculous, but he's teaching us to ask questions. You know, well, what do you want me to do for you? You're, as they're in the, the boat, there's a storm on the sea. As they're doing stuff, even mundane stuff that didn't make scripture. Because you have to remember, he was with them for three years, and we just get just a few chapters, really. So they lived life every day with a modeling factor going on. <clears throat> Sorry. This really wonderful man, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him because he retired. He was quite a bit older than me. But before he retired, in one of my positions in Humboldt, I'd have to meet with this certain VP. And we'd go for walks. And this is what I mean by changing me and being changed by Jesus in everyday walking. As you walk with this guy, you can't help but notice if he sees a dry wrapper or a dry piece of trash, he picks it up, throws it away. We'll be walking along and we see some trash. He'll pick it up, go throw it away. As you walk with him, all of a sudden you find yourself, you're picking up trash and throwing it away as you walk. <laughs> so whenever we walk around campus, you start picking up trash with him. If there are two or three of us, after a while, we're all picking up trash with them. Then I noticed a weird thing. Long after he retired, 
my buddies and I are walking together and we see trash, we just naturally pick it up and throw it away. It changed our nature. It changed our natural reaction to things. Just being around this guy and saw, it, it developed this idea, and we're gonna be talking more in the days ahead about belonging and who we are, what's our corporate identity, who we are in Christ. Part of our corporate identity when you walk with this VP is, you're a person that cares about the campus, so you will pick up trash and throw it away. I mean, now it's like it got so instinctive, other people would have to point out to us because <clears throat> it became second nature. We wouldn't even notice it. It's like you just see it and do it. <clears throat> Dallas Willard says that's the goal of discipleship. The goal of discipleship is that your natural way of reacting is the way Jesus reacted. That Jesus modeled behavior that becomes instinctual. <clears throat> Jesus modeled caring and engaging with people that are overlooked. So later on, the disciples learned to care for people that overlooked. Is that now my reaction is not that I have to control my temper. I don't react with temper because I'm learning to react the way Jesus does, respond the way he does. <clears throat> so why I'm bringing this up is because a scripture for this season that I thought God gave me, and he gave it to me when a different people were coming to mind that happened to go to this church. <clears throat> and it was this scripture, which is an odd scripture. I don't use Hebrews very often. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. And I, I don't mean this in a harsh way. I hope it doesn't come off that way. I know you're already teaching others. I know we are already teaching others. But I feel like God is saying <clears throat> the level of influence, the effect we're having on other generations needs to increase. There are young people around us that we're not even aware of yet that he wants to draw to us. And I really, I, and I also say it, it was this, this real strong thing of this is the scripture for this morning is we are mature enough, it is time to be teaching others. But what gets in the way <clears throat> of us discipling people, befriending them, me, me, mentoring them, and doing more teaching, what hinders us is we have some strange concepts we have to sometimes fight. Some of it is the concepts even what the overall message of God is, the overall logos. Like again, like actually the thing we just talked about in Ephesians, this whole idea that he chose you and sees you blameless. With all the preaching and teaching that goes on, sometimes that message gets lost. Religion sneaks in there. The idea of performance, the idea that our value is based on servitude instead of the fact that we're called friends. You know, the idea that service is our value instead of realizing because I am valuable and Jesus loves me, that's what drives me, compels me in love to serve. Yeah. <clears throat> what it means to live by his declarations. But the other part is this idea about teaching. Uh, my students, I require them to teach. But I think the part that threw them, in fact, I had one poor student was almost in tears, like, I can't do it, I won't do it. Well, then we sat down and I explained to her, what is teaching? What is the way Jesus modeled teaching? And it helped her when, I, when she finally realized, I don't mean on a platform with a microphone. Now, there is a place for that. I'm not saying that there's not a place for it. I'm just saying not everyone has to do that. Jesus' teaching, the vast majority of it, was not on a platform with a microphone. Actually, it was never with a microphone. They didn't have microphones. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but we have to understand, how did Jesus model teaching? Because real effective teaching is, again, that as you do other things, life situations happen. Teaching moments occur. They see how you react to adversity. They see how you handle trouble. It's like that student with me 
who I'm just asking her questions because she's at a time of life where she's, she's nervous. She's at major transition time in her life. And it's just us walking through it together in just conversation. <clears throat> this is where hierarchy gets kind of weird. And, and this was, uh, I've been reading a book about this. And even though he doesn't point it out, I see what he's saying is affirmed. It's not even necessarily a Christian book, but Jesus modeled this. Jesus is super mature. Jesus is all together, right? We're all we're good with that. So if anybody could be on a say, well, we're going to be in a deeper life club. We're going to form a club of just mature believers so we can get into the deeper things of God. If anybody could be in that club, it'd be Jesus. Jesus has no interest in such a club. What did Jesus do? He picked the guys that nobody else picked. He picked fishermen, which means no other Pharisee or teacher thought they were good enough. He picked a tax collector, dreaded person. He picked guys that had no idea what they were being picked for, but they sure loved the fact he picked them. And they had no idea what they're getting into. After three years with them, they still don't get it. Even after the resurrection, we're talking about this in Thursday Night Bible Study, even after the resurrection, even after the death, before Jesus ascends, they ask him, so now is the time that you're going to have Israel run everything? So they aren't the biggest and the brightest, and that's okay. The point I'm making is discipleship means you have to have mature and immature mixed together. You have to have young and old mixed together. You have to have saints that are starting mixed together. The point our hierarchy way of doing things, and this is something that we dealt with even in the secular world, is if all the execs talk to the other execs and maybe a few, you know, a few VPs and directors, they don't really know what's going on in campus. And, and I see we model other way. You could end up with a hierarchy of, well, the pastor talks to the associate pastors who talk to the leaders. And then those leaders lead other people, and then those are the people that deal with the people with the problems down at the ground level. And it's hard without my whiteboard to draw the picture, but, <clears throat> but the idea is you end up with these little bubbles, these little insulations. You know, I, I've even seen it where, even outside the church, well, I'm a senior pastor and I need to talk to other senior pastors. My friends have to be other senior pastors in other churches. I understand there's some relating there, but you've now just isolated yourself. You've created a bubble that you're not aware of. Exactly. Um, one, one thing I found very, very true, I was told when I became a director of friends, I even had a, a well-meaning VP tell me, your friendships are going to change now because you can't stay friends with the people you're now over now. And I can tell you I found that totally not true. The reason we could turn things around is I had friends that were the students on the help desk. I had friends that were actually my former bosses who I was now over, which meant I really had to be friends with them because that got weird. Um, but I found, no, friendships with people at different levels is actually how we solve things. It's what helped turn things around. Yeah. We have to break out of some comfort zone to say, I need cross-generational friendships. <clears throat> So the question that comes to my mind is, so, and just, you know, you gave me a very shortened version of this because I, I like this in my head is like a 10 part series now because I've been thinking about these questions for a while. How do we teach? How do we lead? How do we mentor? And the first thing that I just, as I think about this is, actually before I do, it's what we are. Is I lead and mentor people of other generations by just who I am, what I be. So it's, it's not what I do, it's being. So the answer is B. And I, I threw this sentence in. Um, there's an old saying that says, when the student's ready, the teacher will show up. 
I want to say it the other way. When we're ready, the students show up. Because I remember even when I first left Humboldt, my concern was I'm going to be isolated now because now I'm not going to be around people. And, I, and my friend Kevin was really good. He said, if you pray and ask God to bring people to you and you concentrate on being the leader you're supposed to be, they will show up. And that's exactly what happened. And it is still happening. So if I'm being these things and I pray for God to show me who are the young people I can make a difference in, I know I say the word young, but I'm just being lost. Let's look at our church. We, we aren't, we're, we all have a lot of generations younger than us. I guess that's the polite way to put it. <clears throat> so I want to be a person who carries awareness of God's presence. Because even with that student, if I'm aware of his presence in me, I know now I don't have to strive. I don't have to prove anything to the student. I can just ask God for the questions to ask this person. <clears throat> As I said in my class, I asked the students, you know, tell me what you look for in a leader and we, we boil it down. Almost always, one of the top things they look for in a leader is a listener. A listener who is not merely caring about them, but is actually interested in them. Because a lot of times as pastors that people, we, we get in a rut, I'd say almost a, well, I care about people, so if you're in the hospital, I'll visit you. I'll pray for you. I don't want you to be sick. You know, it's like, we care about you. But real leadership development happens when you're interested in people. You have this curiosity about them. <clears throat> you're curious about their experiences. What are they believing God for? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to them? I know I say this a lot, but I have certain questions I like to ask students. I like to ask them, what is God showing them in the Word? What is Jesus declaring over them, to them, and through them? I like to really emphasize this one a lot. How is God inviting them to participate with what he is doing with the lives of those around him. Because one reason young people get turned off is that they are around older people when they share their heart, the older person says, well, let me tell you, young fellow, this is what you need to do. That, that does not foster a great relationship. Okay, I've been in small groups where a young guy pours his heart out and then he gets that response. Then the next guy pours his heart out and then that guy gets the same response. And big shock, the young guys quit pouring their hearts out. <laughs> is we're after drawing out of the person. Yes, I know we have wisdom to share, but I've learned they ask questions. They will ask me questions eventually if I start asking them questions. And then we get down to the right stuff. Okay, what are the common things we see young people needing modeled reinforced? Well, I say this is kind of a, an unusual one for me. I mean, those of you that are used to my way of teaching, I know this is different. But I really was trying to say, God, what can I do in 28 minutes to get to some high points? Now, it is very fun to find out about each person. Like, what do they really need? Well, ask them questions and see it. But with that said, I felt like God told me to emphasize these three things that I've been dealing with just the last month with students. So here are the three things from this month that I see that students need encouragement with, help with, need someone to model it for them, need someone to ask questions and draw it out for them. First one is God's overall message about who he is and who we are. The Logos message of God. We often talk about the Logos and Rhema. Again, I won't do the whole speech, but Logos does not mean written word. I know that's taught a lot, but if you look up Logos in the Bible, the Bible itself doesn't say that. Logos is the overall message that is Jesus Christ. The overall message of who the Father is and who we are in Him. How to live by what God declares. How to live in His love now, the small. Well, I shall go to the next one. 
after I say this. I already mentioned this once. The guys I'm crying with, part of what they're learning, and it's a hard, hard lesson. And what helps me is I remember when I was in my 20s, it was a hard lesson for me, is learning to live by God's declarations when my feelings are telling me something different. Learning how to get free of my own bloody opinion. You know, and, and I know I've said this before, but I had to say it to a student just the other day. I said, I'm gonna tell you what I have told guys in jail. Your best thinking got you here. Because sometimes they are so full of opinion, we cannot even hardly talk about the word. So as much as I ask them questions, I have to admit we're also assertive we need to be. And say, well, let's look at what the word declares over your life. <clears throat> a person's value is not based on what they can do for God, for the church, or for fulfilling a vision. There's a lot of young people, even though they're young, and by young I even include people in their 30s, they're having a hard time with traditional church. Because church for them was by leaders who are, this is my vision, this is my plan, come join me in my vision. And all the sermons were about, look at the awesome things God is doing through me. Let me tell you about my stuff. And it reinforced this idea that our job is to give money and support the pastor while the pastor does the work. And it's led to a lot of hurt. And it helps if we really learn to first say, their value is not on fulfilling any mission I have. <clears throat> Big practical one. How not to strive to impress people so I can get promoted into a position. Could be secular position. A lot of things I'm with right now, it's even church position. Like, I want to get promoted in a church position so I can travel the world preaching the gospel. Which, well, no, don't do that. Um, where you can do great things for God. What they need instead is they have to learn to rest and surrender. This is, again, that whole idea of resting in the fear of the Lord. Knowing how big he is and who I am in, in him lets me rest in that my fear, my, awe, my being awestruck is he's got the answers, not me. I don't need to be anybody's hero. I don't need to be anybody's hero. There's a lot of weird hero complex that gets in the way. I don't need to be anybody's hero. Jesus is the hero. I just need to participate with what he's doing. So I don't need to do great things for God. I need to learn to surrender everything so I can do everything with God. And then God will take care of what's great and significant. Oops. Okay? That's actually all I wanted to go with this. These, these are not every tip to being engaged with young people. <coughs> what I'm hoping is this will generate thought. This will generate conversations with us going forward. Because my concern with us as an older congregation is, and I'm not saying we have to try and drag young people here. I mean, it's great if they're here. What I'm saying is in your everyday life, I don't know if you know what you carry. And I guess that's the heart. This is not, I'm not trying to come down on anybody. I think what happens is when we're around each other a lot, we forget how much we've matured. And when I'm around young people and I hear their struggles, it's like, oh yeah, I remember those struggles and God brought me through them. And I actually forget the thankfulness of what God brought me through unless I'm around people to go, oh yeah, I remember that rough spot. Back, back. Well, actually, for me, even though they're in their 20s, I was a slow learner. So for me, it was back in my 40s. But, <clears throat> but we, with that exposure, asking God to bring people into our lives, it'll make it more real what you carry. Because you actually, God has built a lot of stuff in you. God has placed a lot of stuff in us. But I'm saying you, because I want you to hear this almost like a word from the Lord. It is time for you to be the teacher. It is time for you to be the mentor. And I know you're already doing it, but I really believe God wants to increase it. Okay? We're good? Okay, now we're transitioning to communion. Does everybody have their both cups? 
And this is actually going to go with the message. <clears throat> Knowing it's Communion Sunday, I, I like C.S. Lewis. And I want us to see a thing that C.S. Lewis wrote. He did not write it in verse. My mind reads in verse sometimes. So I saw what, I, this is just a paragraph out of one of his books. But when I read it, it strikes me as poetry. So that's how you, that's how you get to see it, whether you want it to or not. <clears throat> this is out of his book, uh, The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, wrap, wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. I'm not saying you can't have any hobbies. What he's saying is preoccupy yourself with stuff that you can just do. Avoid all entanglements with other people. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it, meaning your heart, will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and perturbations of love. Okay, I'm going to leave his phrasing. So that just means agitations, things that make you anxious, interruptions, disruptions that can make you anxious and worried. So from all danger and perturbations of love, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from that is hell. And I, and I know CSOS has a very non-conventional view of hell. But we can lock up safe, we can get busy with our little things, our hobbies, our plans, our trips. And I'm not saying we don't take any of those. But we can get so wrapped up in that that we actually create a hell for us because we're safe from pain. We're also safe from the very things that bring us love and life. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and to me, it does go with this message because part of getting involved with young people means you have to give up some of your time for other things. And as we do this communion, I, I like sharing it is that we are a community. We're a community that's also committed to, we're willing to take the risk. And we have a family in the church now, they're dealing with the risk of losing a loved one. Uh, when, when my kids moved out of the home, it hurt, but it was a good kind of hurt. It still hurts that they live across the country. God's goal was not that I get shielded from that pain. Love means if someone leaves the church, we should miss them, right? Even though they're in heaven, it's okay. So with that, Lord, I first say thank you, God, that you were willing to be disturbed, that you love in pain. You do a lot to cost. So I thank you for your body that was broken for us. God, we praise you that because of that, we can be one. And we, re we eat this now in celebrating thankfulness to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh God, we thank you that you bled, that because you bled, we're healed, that by your bleeding stripes, we're healed. Amen. And God, we also commit that we want to partake. We want to be the broken bread and the poured out wine for your kingdom too. 
So we drink this and we celebrate, we thank you for it, Lord, but we also say we're willing to believe too. Thank you, Lord. Let's drink. <laughs>